Welcome, everybody. Hey, if you would, uh, grab a Bible and open up to Psalm 74. If you don't have a Bible, there's probably someone, someone's like just spewed on the floor somewhere. Psalm 74. And as a way of reminder before we jump in, uh, we bought these last, last couple of weeks. We've had these Psalm journaling Bibles. So we're working through the Psalms. We worked through the Psalms in January and are going to continue doing so until Easter. And these Bibles are just the Psalms, but they also have a spot for journaling on one side. Um, so if you want one of these, they're just at the back in the Welcome Center. So you can go pick up one of those. Um, Psalm 74. So we are currently in a series entitled Holy Words, which is us walking through the Psalms of Lament, these communal prayers and cries of desperation, these songs of sadness that the people of Israel would gather together to sing together to both protest something that was happening in their lives, to hold in tension the difficult realities around them, to give voice to the pain and suffering and complexity and confusion of the world around them, these Communal prayers or hopes or songs that they would gather around and sing in moments of crisis or trial or confusion. And we're doing them as a community uh, because there are things in our world that need to be lamented. There are things in our lives that need to be lamented. There are things in our own experiences that need to be lamented. And there are things in our world that need to be lamented. Yet, we do not often have tools for lamenting the difficult realities around us. So we see crisis in the world, and our engagement with that is, well, we have a few options for how we're going to engage those crises. So we can go political, and we can vote, and we can legislate, and we can change policy, and there's good and right uses of that. We can feel sad, we can try to ignore it. We can try to deny the pain that we experience in the world around us, distract ourselves from the pain that we see in the world around us, or even the pain that we're experiencing. But none of that leads to anything that looks like healing in our own life. That so often in our attempt to deal with pain, or to deny pain, or to ignore pain, or to figure out how to fix it really quickly, what we end up doing is, is making it invisible to our own selves, or making it invisible to the community around us, where it then takes a place in our life that festers and produces shame. See, most of us do not have tools for handling and navigating complexity, navigating the ups and downs of human existence. Some of us are really good at celebration. Even then, though, I don't know that we're great at that experience either. So we need tools, skills, to help us navigate the difficult parts of life, to help navigate the ups and downs, the complexity, the unknown, to help lead us into spaces that feel unsure. And the Psalms of Lament, they invite us into that kind of tension, and instead of trying to solve it, or fix it, or manage it, or deal with it, they invite us to see where God is present to us in the midst of it. Where might God be in it with? How might he be joining us in that moment? How might he be attentive to us? And that is hard and that is difficult because that is not necessarily the kind of answer that we want to the difficult things that we're experiencing. Like often we want a quick fix, which is why we turn to quick fixes for our own lamenting moments. But God does not often promise quick fixes. Instead, he promises to be with us, 
Lament invites us into that to mean what does it mean that God is with us? What does it mean that he is joining us? What does it mean that he is present to us? What does it mean that we get to protest and bring our pain and our shame and our hurt to him in those moments? What does that mean for us? What does that do for us? So we're walking through these psalms. And we're doing it during the season of Lent because it just feels like an appropriate moment to talk about the psalms of Lament. The season of Lent is that kind of season where we are reflecting on Jesus' own season of lamentation, you could say, like where he is moving towards the cross, he is wrestling with suffering, he's wrestling with the complexity of his own life, he's wrestling with these like big questions that he has, where even those questions would make him ask, like, God, why have you forsaken me? So he's wrestling with like the suffering and the difficulty and the tension and the reality of his own life in the season of Lent. During this moment, we look at how Jesus entered into the whole of human experience, and he suffered with us. And in this season, we look at how Jesus was faithful, how he was trusting to and through all the suffering that he experienced. In some ways, I was thinking about this, you cannot actually talk about Lent without talking about lament, and probably it should be the other way around as well, that you you shouldn't talk about lament without also talking about Jesus' journey towards the cross. Mainly, you can't do one without the other because our lament gets to be different because of Jesus' Lent. Instead of having to be strong or joyful or, or some kind of like, I don't know, caricature of like Christian endurance, we get to trust Jesus in the midst of our difficulty because he was trustworthy in the midst of his. Instead of showing up or, or, or like living into some kind of moral imperative in the midst of our own crisis, we get to hold fast to Jesus and rest in him who is strong in our stead. Now hear me, that does not necessarily mean that lament will always be easy. It doesn't mean that the, the suffering or the difficulties or the unexplainable parts of our life will be easy or that they will even make sense. Lament is hard even when it is riddled with the hope of Jesus. Right? Lament is hard, and it will always be hard, no matter how much hope it is infused with, no matter how much we can look to Jesus. That does not deny the fact that it is hard. And I think for that same reason, this like, series has been a heavy thing for us to enter into. Heather named it last week, where she said one of the things that is hard about lament is that we're afraid that the dark things will just like, get a hold of us, and they won't let go. That is hard. It's hard to wade into tension. It's hard to wade into the questions that we have. It's hard to wade into those complicated moments of our life. And so all of that to say, I'm really proud of you for the way that you have done that. It may be really hard, but something so beautiful is like emerging out of our willingness to enter into these kind of difficult conversations. Something that looks like healing. So with that, Let's look at Psalm 74. Before we do, let's pray real fast, and then we'll jump into it. Father, thank you so much for the courage of your people. That you have led us into hard places. You've led us into our own kind of like hidden spaces in our lives. God, as we wander into those moments, would you give us trust in you, hope in you, You help us to lament well. 
Meet us today, be with us, in your name we pray. Amen. In 577 BC, which is how you always want a sermon to start with a historical date, in 577 BC, Judah, which is the northern kingdom of Israel, was conquered by Babylon. And it is one of the most tragic and horrific moments in all of Israelite history. Jerusalem itself was destroyed, the walls of the city were torn down, which is like the whole book of Nehemiah is about. The political infrastructure of the kingdom was overthrown, never to really be rebuilt in any kind of like normal sense. Israel always exists as some kind of like vassal of a larger kingdom from this moment on. So their political infrastructure is thrown down. Their state identity is overdone. The temple, which is the heart of their like religious identity, is destroyed. And the people of Israel are led into exile, into Babylon where they will spend some 70 years of their existence. And Psalm 74 was written soon after Israel was conquered and exiled into Babylon. And this is one of those moments, like one of those tragedies and one of those difficulties that is existential in its nature. It questions everything about a people. Like it's so big and it's so vast and it's so tragic that every part of, of, of their lives would have been called into question by this kind of like tremendous event. But I don't know, I was trying to think like, is there a moment in American history that is similar? And, and I don't think there is unless like we lose the Revolutionary War and Heather is our duchess, not our pastor. Like that's the only way that I know that there is like the same kind of existential question at play in this moment is if our identity was questioned, if our history was questioned, if like how we understood ourselves and defined ourselves, and even what we called home was ruined. I don't know that we have examples, but you could probably think of the ongoing war in Yemen or Syria where a homeland is destroyed, a history is destroyed, and a people displaced. Right? And there are some clues in Psalm 74 that, that help us get like the emotional weight of this tragedy. If you look at verse 2, the psalmist says, God, remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. So the psalmist is saying, like, God, remember our story. Like, we are the people of Israel. You called us out of Egypt. You rescued us. You led us into the wilderness. You entered into relationship with us. Remember that we are your people, chosen and defined by you. But then he goes on to say, so therefore, direct your steps to the perpetual ruin. Like, we are your people, we have this story, and all of it lies in ruin. We have this heritage, and this history, and this identity, and yet it is in ruin. The psalmist goes on to say, not only is our story in question, but this thing that made us a unique people it is also destroyed. In verse 7, it says, they set your sanctuary on fire, talking about the temple. They profaned the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. See, Israel lived in, in unique relationship with God. He had given them the temple, and he's like, hey, I'm going to live here with you. I'm going to be in relationship with you. And then through my relationship with you, we're going to bless the world. We're going to change this game because I'm going to be in unique relationship with you. And so when the temple gets destroyed, like the thing that makes them a people is gone. 
the thing that gave them purpose and identity and a sense of presence, it's gone. The thing that gave them religious vitality or spiritual hope is gone. So the temple is destroyed, and our, and our hope is so laid bare that if you look at verse 9, it says, we don't even see our signs. There's no sense of, like, you doing something. There's no longer any prophet, and there is none among us who knows how long. Our past is gone. The thing that defined us in the present is gone, and we have no sense of what might come. The prophets who connected us to God, they're gone. Signs of your presence, gone. So the psalmist, like, very logically asks in verse 1, Oh God, why do you do this? Like, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Why do you do this? But when the psalmist asks this question, it introduces a really strange tension into the, the conversation for us. Because, like, we... And they actually, too, we know why the exile happened. We know why this moment is occurring in the life of Israel. Because throughout Israel's history, they have consistently rejected God, exploited others, and chosen to live their life their own way, outside of God's teachings, instructions, or relationships. And the prophets that they're lamenting not having, well, they have for a long time been telling Israel, like, hey, like, if you don't stop exploiting the poor, if you don't stop worshiping false gods, if you don't stop looking like the nations around you, God's going to let you be like the nations around you. So even warning them, even as far back as Moses, like the very first major prophet in Israelite history, he was telling them, he's like, hey, if you don't knock it off, this is never going to happen right. So on the one hand, like in Israel's history, they are suffering consequences for their own actions and decisions. They've abandoned God, they have rejected God, they have exploited others, they have built their empire on the backs of the poor and the oppressed and on false gods. All things that God was like, you will not do. And they have done it. But on the other hand, Israel is suffering very real destruction, and pain. A nation that is far their superior has invaded their land, destroyed their home, and exiled them. And here's where the other side of the tension comes in, because through the prophet Jeremiah, who's a prophet that's living at the same moment, God will say of the Babylonians, the Lord has stirred up the spirit of the kings of Mede because it is his purpose concerning Babylon to destroy it. Why? For vengeance for his temple. So Israel is conquered because they have abandoned God, they have rejected his ways, they have exploited the poor, and yet on the other side of this, God's like, I'm going to have vengeance for you. I'm going to seek justice for this wrong that has been done against my kingdom and against my homeland and against my people. Israel has done something wrong, and yet they have also been wrong. And I think that is the tension of this psalm. What do you do when the suffering that we experience or the unknown that we experience is complicated? 
What do we do when the things that we are experiencing, the difficulties that we are experiencing, the suffering that is happening in our own life is simply complicated? When it is hard to say when justice ends and injustice begins, when it's hard to find someone to blame easily, and when there is no simple equation for this caused this. What do we do when the things that are happening around us, the unknown experiences, are simply complicated? And the truth is, is I, I don't think that we're very good at living in complicated tension. We want, more often than not, I think, an easy-to-understand story. And if the story is not simple, I think we have a tendency to make it simple. If there's not easy villains and easy victims and easy equations, and I think what we will do is we'll run it through the grid of our own like simplification process and we will smash it down until it is easy to understand, until it makes sense, until it is a clean equation, until it is black and white and simple. We will simplify complicated stories. You can see this all throughout like the, the culture and the way that we engage with people. We do this politically. Refugees are either model minorities and victims, or they are villains and monsters. It's always one of the two. The problems in our society are either rich people or it is poor people. One is a victim, one is a villain. And in both cases, a complicated story is reduced and people lose humanity and voice. A complicated story is reduced to its like lowest common denominator, and the people who are engaged in that story, the people whose lives are affected in that story, are also reduced to a number. It just becomes a simple equation to us. We also see this often in our own lives in terms of like heartbreak and divorce. Breakups are never simple stories, but we often want to make them simple stories. Difficulties in relationships are made up of a history, wounds, people with really good intentions that go wrong. It's layers upon layers of like moments and time and interactions. But we want to take all of that complexity, all the layers that are playing out in that relationship and say, no, 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 one person was bad, one person did wrong, one person didn't carry their weight, and the other person was a victim of that. Now, are there sometimes really clear lines around victims? Yes. But more often than not, if we look at our own narrative and our own story, it is layered. But in the aftermath of heartbreak, we often want to simplify it because it makes it easier for us to navigate. And it may be easier to navigate, but there are real-world consequences to simplifying difficult stories. And the first is that if we simplify people's stories, people lose their humanity including us. Instead of humans who are engaged in conflict and resolution, we get weird caricatures of one another. I was watching an interview this week with uh, Monica Lewinsky. What like an amazing example of someone who, who turned into a caricature. And she, that's what she was saying. She was being interviewed and she was like, she's like, I was watching myself as a, a version of me got more and more false. As I became more and more of a predator. She's like 21. She's like, I became more and more of a predator. I became more and more something that didn't resemble a human being. 
And her story got lost. Her voice got lost. And a complicated story about desire and abuse and power and lust and like relationship, it got reduced into something so simple and lives got ruined. And not only do we do it to people outside of ourselves, that we do it to ourselves all the time. I can easily make myself into a villain and believe that my history or my experiences are negative, and then I can believe the worst possible lies about my own self. Because I'm to blame for this thing going wrong, or I'm the one that carries the weight for this rejection, or for this wound, or for this wrong, or for this failure to be strong and to show up in the midst of my own abuse. Like, that can become my fault. I can become the villain of my own, like, victimization, my own wounds and hurt. And obviously, it's not that simple. And I can do the other thing, too, though, is I can become a victim and then never have to own my own complicity, my own responsibility in the wounds that that are happening in a relationship. I can never carry my own side of the story or conversation. See, in both cases, if I become a villain or a victim, a story is told that removes my humanity. Because the truth is, we are always more than either a victim or a villain. We are always more than victims or villains. Yes, I may have done something wrong, but do not steal my humanity from me. And yes, I may have been wounded, but do not remove my power from me. I am always more. So often when we reduce the story, we we lose people in it. We lose their humanity, and then in losing their humanity, we tend to push them to the margin. Those who suffer are kept silent. Those who perpetrate never get a chance to own, repent, or, or, or change, to experience healing, to experience the table. And in both cases, we lose out on healing. And instead, we are left with shame because we have said your pain in its complexity is not welcome here. We simply need a different way to engage the complicated. To hold intention that Israel, like us, has both suffered and caused suffering. And lament allows us to do that. It gives us a new set of tools because the very first thing that lament will always do is it will humanize. Lament humanizes. Israel is both victim and villain in this very moment. And lament holds that intention by naming the pain of both experiences. Because the truth is, even when we are the ones that have sinned and done wrong, there is damage to us. There's this, this really interesting moment that Heather and I were talking about this last week in Genesis 9 where God tells Noah, he's like, hey, um, in case you forgot, don't kill people. And then it has this like line connected with it, which is like, don't kill people because you guys are made in my image. And it would be easy to assume like, oh, you don't kill people because they are the image of God. But the weight of that moment is like, no, no, both of you are image bearers. And to be murdered is a violation, but to murder is also a violation. That in the act of wrongdoing, you are also violating what it means to be a human, to what it means to flourish, to to what it means to be an image of God and in relationship with God, self, and others. That when we wrong 
others, we are also wronging and violating our own health and wholeness. Right? Even our own sin against others is a sin against ourselves that we have wounded ourselves. We too are victims of our own sin. That's not trying to excuse a wrong. Just recognizing that it is complicated. One of my favorite authors is a guy named Brennan Manning, and I think he sums this like, complicated reality up in just really beautiful language. He says, when I get honest, I admit that I am a bundle of paradoxes. I believe and I doubt. I hope and I get discouraged. I love and I hate. I feel bad about feeling good. I feel guilty about not feeling guilty. I'm trusting and I'm suspicious. I'm honest and I still play games. Aristotle said I'm a rational animal, but I say I'm an angel with an incredible capacity for beer. To live by grace means to acknowledge my whole life story. The light side and the dark. To lament holds all of our stories, all of its complexities, all of its layers, both light and dark. It holds it all together in one moment and then it infuses it with grace. And that might be the hardest moment of lament for us, is that it humanizes everyone involved in the story. It infuses everyone's story with grace, victims and perpetrators, which means that I don't get to cast you as a caricature of yourself. Like, I have to live in tension with you and all of your humanity and all of your wounds and all of your realness and all of your grace and all of your beauty and all of your light and your dark, that we got to engage with one another in that together. Full of life. See, lament challenges us to see one another in all of our complexity. And when that happens, it enables and begins to empower healing. Because we will never get to heal if we see ourselves as only victims and others as villains or vice versa. Right? The foundation of reconciliation is truth. So to tell fully true stories about you and about me. And lament also empowers us to do that because one of the things that stops us from telling true stories is our shame about those stories. But lament has a way of confronting our shame. If you're reading Psalm 74, it is full of shame language. Like in verse 10, Israel prays, like, how long, O God, is the foe to scoff at us? Like, how long are we to experience derision for where we are in life and the place that we fill and for, the, like, the role that we have? How long are we supposed to feel shame. It is so easy to feel shame in pain. Shame that we failed, shame that we didn't show up, shame that we have like some false caricature, that we're living in that, that shame that we don't know what to do with any of it. But in infusing our story with grace and humanity, what lament does is it gives us room to feel all the complex emotions that we feel in mourning. But there is no room for shame and lament because all of it is welcome, all of it is called, all of it is invited before God. At no moment, it's interesting, like, at no, like God confronts Israel for all sorts of things. But in the Psalms, you never get a moment where God is like, you shouldn't feel this way. There's definitely moments where it's like, you should not do that. Like, don't sacrifice that child. But there's never a moment where it's like, 
don't feel that way. God never shames Israel about their own feelings. He doesn't shame them about their questions or their cries, but he instead gives ear to it. And even more, he is attentive to his people in it. That doesn't mean that Israel doesn't suffer. It doesn't mean that they don't experience difficult things. Like Israel goes into exile, but God goes with them. Israel does enter into exile. They lose the homeland, but God also gives up his homeland and enters into exile with them. There's this amazing moment right at the beginning of the prophet Ezekiel's work. And Ezekiel is an exile prophet. He lives with the people of Israel in Babylon. And right at the beginning of his book, he sees God in a vision leave the temple and then head towards Babylon. It's like this amazing moment, which is Israel's so tragically lamenting the destruction of their homeland and the destruction of like all the things that made them unique, which was God's presence in the midst of them. And then Ezekiel sees this image, which is like, oh wait, like God, he's like coming with us. He's in this moment with us. He's living in this space, in this difficulty, in this hardship with us. Israel goes to exile, but God goes with them. And when he does, these questions that Israel asks in this psalm, all of them get powerful answers. Psalm 9, they ask, where are the prophets? Israel gets prophets in exile. They get Ezekiel, they get Jeremiah, they get all of these people who are still like connecting them to God, that are still like leading them, that are still giving them a sense of hope for the future, that are still connecting them to their identity and their roots. Israel is upset that the temple is destroyed, but in exile, God promises that a new temple will be built, one that is bigger than like the physical building that will extend to the entire world and bring renewal and hope and restoration to all things. If you look at verse 20 of Psalm 74, the Israelites ask God to remember their covenant, which is like the special relationship they have. It says, hey, have regard for the covenant, for the dark places of the land are full of of the habitations of violence. But in exile, God promises a new covenant with the people of Israel. One that will never be broken, one that isn't dependent upon their moral ability or their their capability, but that is totally dependent upon his love for them. This is a really fascinating moment that Israel is in the most tragic space of their lives and yet they receive the biggest and most beautiful hopes of their entire story in that moment. They lose like all of these things that made them unique and then as they enter into this like trauma and tragedy, God promises all of those things but bigger. God goes with Israel into exile. He's attentive to them in exile. This is both the message of the Psalms of Lament every single time, but even more so, this is the message of Lent. A story about our God who gave up his home and entered into exile willingly. It's a story about our God who suffered the rejection of the cross, the rejection of his people, the shame of betrayal. But, who out, but who throughout the entire process refused to simplify anyone's story, even his own. When Peter denies him, Jesus never shames him, but he restores him. When the mob rejects him, Jesus never hates them, but he forgives them. In each moment, Jesus 
refuses to simplify other people's stories, to shame them, to, to push them into a caricature, and instead he offers grace. And instead he offers hope. And that is maybe the most powerful thing about lament, is that lament confronts our shame and our caricatures with the love of Jesus for us. Lament confronts all of the shame and all of our caricatures and all of our false identities with the love that Jesus is with us, that he is for us, that he has entered into exile with us. And at the same time, as Jesus is with us, lament adds a yet to our story, which is a cheesy thing to say, but if you look at verse 12, the psalmist says, yet... God, my king, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. Right in the middle of all of the questions and worries and heartaches and like recountings of tragedies, the psalmist says, yet God is our king and he is doing something in the world. Not only is he with us, not only has he joined us in exile, not only is he present to us, but he is doing something in this world. He is healing me, the villain. He is restoring me as the victim. He is reconciling all things back to himself. He is accomplishing something in the midst of this world. And that, more than anything else, is actually the good story of Lent. Yes, God is with us. He is present to us. But he has also made these promises to Israel, and he is fulfilling them in Jesus. He forms his people into a new temple and fills it with his presence. He creates a new relationship with us, one that can't be broken no matter what we do, no matter what we say, no matter how we respond to our own lament and suffering. He makes a home for us by giving up his own. But that's the good news of Lent, the good news of even the Psalms of Lent. But it is hard. It's hard to live in this, like, in-between space. Right? Yes, we believe that God is doing something. Yes, we believe that he is accomplishing something. But I often think that knowing that God is doing something or accomplishing something, sometimes it feels like it makes the moments that we're living in even harder. Right? Because it is like there is hope at the end of the day. And so now, like, the, the tension of our own moment feels, like, even more real and intense. Like, we have to live in this. So where do we do with that space? Like, we believe that God is doing something. We believe that he's accomplishing something. How do we live in this moment? I actually think this, too, is where lament is helpful to us because lament helps us hold the tension. It's a way for us to declare that we know that God is doing something, but we still need him, of saying that we believe, but we need our unbelief to be helped. And and you have this amazing moment in the final chapter of the Bible, in Revelations, where there's like a beautiful picture of all that Jesus is accomplishing. He's just been written. Like Jesus is going to be king, and he's going to redeem the whole world, and he's going to fix everything, and there'll be no tears, and it's going to be awesome. But then it ends with, amen, come Lord Jesus. And that's what the ESV says, but the old school KJV does this thing that really like gets the emotion, and it says, amen, even so, come Lord Jesus. Like we know the hope, 
But even so, it's hard. So would you come? Lament is how we hold that tension. The tension of both victim and villain, the tension of faith and hope. It's how we hold, like, to live in the midst of that and refuse simple stories, refuse false caricatures, and it's how we invite God to be with us in the middle of it. And when we're holding it and when we're willing to say, like, I don't know what to do with this moment, what we find is that God is already with us in the middle of it. That he always goes into exile with his people that he's always present to them in that space. But like Israel in exile, he never left. The Bible often uses exile language not only to describe Israel, but also to describe us. And it does that in order to express that we are God's people who have been tasked to live in this in-between space. That God has done something, that he's accomplishing something, but it's not finished yet. And so we live in holding the tension of all of it together. And we're tasked with like the work of being God's people in the midst of that. To show the world what it looks like to live as God's people. To show the world what it means to long for another world as we live in this one. And lament is, is, I think, one of the practices that help us do that. But it names the brokenness of the world, and it points towards hope. Holds complicated hurt and tension. It humanizes, and it infuses our stories with grace, and then it invites every single person to the table. So, final question, Missio, what do we do with all of that? I think the first thing is, just as a community, we need to continue practicing lament. And what you'll see is um, somewhere around you, there's a card. It looks like this. It has Holy Words on it, which is the series title. And then on the back, there's a space to write something. And so here's what we'd invite you to do, is to take that card and write out some kind of lament on the back of that. And in whatever fashion it is, maybe it's a word, maybe it's a poem, maybe it's a, a, a phrase that you've been saying. Maybe it's something that is true about your own life. Maybe it's true about the world that you're witnessing around you. Maybe it's just the reality that you're trying to like figure out how to hold the tension of hope and hurt. Write that on the back of this card. And even if you use a simple word, do not settle for a simple story. Write your lament on the back of this card and then would you bring it to the table and place it on the table table for us. It is the symbol of where God meets us. It's, it's this like the bread is broken, the blood is spilled. It's this moment where God is like, I'm entering into this new covenant relationship with you. I want you to gather on this table because it is, it is the picture of what I'm accomplishing in the world, of what I'm doing in the world, of how I'm meeting people. And it's a place where he promised to meet us. So would you write your lament, would you bring it to the table? We remember that God stepped into our own lives and where we're hoping and, and waiting to pay attention to where he's in our lives now. And then leave it there. And throughout the rest of the couple of weeks of this series, we're just going to begin to collect laments and leave them on the table. And then on Good Friday, the moment where Jesus like gives up his life in order to enter into full exile with us, we'll shroud the table. 
right? That ultimate symbol of God absorbing all of our laments into himself in order that we might have a different home and a different story and hope as we lament. So, Mr., take, take a moment, write your lament on the back of the card. Bring it to the communion table where God confronts your shame with love, where God joins you and joins you by joining you to others. Bring your car to the place where God promised to meet you. And then when you're done with that, we invite you to sing and to participate in the table. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, I don't know what else to say except thank you that you are with us in this moment. And not just this moment, and not just moments of celebration, and not just moments of sadness, but you are with us in all of our moments, in all of our places, ups, down, middles, mundane, boring, complicated, confusing, unknown. You are with us in those moments. God, help us to pay attention. Help us to be attentive to the ways that you're attentive to us, to know that you love us, to know that you confront our shame with your presence. God, as we also tap into that like, recognition of what you're doing, help us to see the hope in you. To know that you're bringing justice, to know that you're righting wrongs, to know that you're healing broken hearts. And then as we know that you're with us and we see what's happening, then, well, that's what it means to be your people. God, do your work here. In your name we pray. Amen. So use that moment to run your cards, and then when you're ready... We invite you to the table. Bread is gluten-free and nut-free, and you can um, dip it in the juice, which is non-alcoholic. And then there will also be people over here who want to pray with you.